Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast. Hope you guys had a great weekend. It's Monday morning, and we are back with another one. Some science again. The neuroscience of memory. Some of these concepts we've touched on a little bit in the neuroplasticity episode, but I want to fully flush out kind of what the brain is doing to form memories and how memory works in the brain. Originally, I wanted to record an episode about, there was a book that interested me called The Idea of the Brain, and it really traced how we conceptual, how we have conceptualized the brain throughout history. But then I kind of read, like when I read the chapter on memory, I realized, you know, let's have an in-depth analysis into how memory works in the brain. So further reading, you guys can still check out Matthew Cobb's The Idea of the Brain. Um, but uh, what we're really going to touch on is just kind of one chapter from that. And um, yeah, and also other sources as well that um, talk about the neuroscience of memory. So let's talk about that now. The simple definition of memory is just the retention of information over time. This isn't too much of a surprise to you guys. And But the neuroscientific definition is the storage and subsequent reactivation of experience-induced changes in the brain. So what's happening when a memory is formed, it's certain brain areas are being activated and this changes your brain. And then these areas, in a way, are almost reactivated again. Um, This kind of same pattern is reactivated when you rekindle this memory. So starting kind of with a personal anecdote. So there's a song in one of the greatest movie scenes of all time, by the way, The Long Take, it's called, in the movie Goodfellas. And the song plays in the background called Then He Kissed Me. And every time now when I hear this song, I immediately think of the scene in the movie. Why is this the case? How does What is the brain doing um, to cause me to remember the scene in the movie just by hearing the song? Well, it comes down to really reactivating areas and pathways in the brain that were active when I first saw the scene. My memory of the song is present in different brain regions. So when I hear the song, not only do brain regions for processing sound reactivate, um, but so do areas for processing visual stimuli from watching the scene. Because these two brain areas were initially activated in tandem when I watched the scene and heard the song at the same time, these brain areas now fire in tandem when I hear only the song, making it impossible for me to dissociate the song from the scene in the movie. So really, the point of this is that in some ways, memory is a pattern of firing throughout the brain that closely replicates the brain's firing pattern of the initial experience in a way. This is that reactivation of areas in the brain that um, were active when my memory was formed. So when my memory was formed, for this scene in the movie, it also came along with the song too. So now just hearing the song, I also remember the scene too. So these areas were kind of activated in tandem. Obviously, this is a gross oversimplification. And um, what we're going to get into now is really how memory operates in the brain, kind of aside from this anecdotal experience that I just used as an introductory, for introductory purposes. We're going to talk about the pioneers in memory research and the neuroscience of memory. The first one is Wilder Penfield. From the 1930s onwards, 
Wilder Penfield carried out hundreds of brain operations with the aim of relieving chronic debilitating temporal lobe epilepsy. So really he was just trying to relieve seizures excuse me, in the temporal lobes. So what he was doing was he stimulated brain areas to test what was causing the seizures. Sometimes what he found though was that this stimulation led to the patient reliving very precise events just by stimulating certain areas of the brain. So often these patients, for instance, they heard a piano being played, they heard someone singing a well-known song, or they heard a telephone conversation between two family members even. In one case, even when the electrode was left in one place for a long enough time, the patient sang along to an entire song that was playing in their head. So clearly Penfield realize that just by stimulating certain areas of the brain, things can be reactivated or memories can be triggered of songs and of things like this. So he gleaned from this data that memory might have precise locations within the brain. For the first time, it became known that activating brain areas alone could trigger memories. This was really big in research on the neuroscience of memory. Carl Lashley is another pioneer in the neuroscience of memory, his experience on animals showed that deficits in learning produced by surgical operations were proportional to the extent of damage to the brain. So the more brain damage a patient had, the more that patient failed to form memories and therefore learn. So these researchers are starting to figure out that huh, memory is seems to be kind of almost stored in certain areas of the brain, and if the brain is damaged, they can't form memories quite as well. Donald Hebb, he was arguably the, the biggest influence in research on the neuroscience of memory. His 1949 book, The Organization of Behavior, became the modern biological framework for understanding how the brain functions. Hebb's views were more or less materialist in this book, and the materialist standpoint, as we've actually touched on again in the neuroplasticity episode and possibly in other ones too, is just the idea that the mind is simply a product of activity in the brain. The materialist viewpoint is that matter is the fundamental substance in nature and all things, including mental states and consciousness, are a result of material interactions of, of the brain. It doesn't come from anywhere else other than... Uh, other than the brain. So all behavior comes from this activity in the brain. Materialism really is the primary viewpoint of neuroscientists because they study how um, activity in the brain creates behavior or creates mental states and things like this. So this is why uh, this viewpoint is prevalent in neuroscience and Hebb really started this off in, in the nineteen mid-1900s. Hebb's neurophysiological postulate of memory was this. He said, when brain cell A continuously communicates with brain cell B, these are neurons in the brain that communicate to one another to transmit signals. When this happens, some growth processes or metabolic changes take place in one or both cells. This causes cell A's efficiency to be increased. More simply, Hebb was saying that synapses, which are the hub of communication between these two brain cells, can develop and grow stronger when neurons are activated together. So this is often <laughs> quite snappily summarized as cells that fire together, wire together. According to Hebb, 
the network of connections in the nervous system is formed through experience. So what he really discovered, and not necessarily even discovered, Hebb was really a visionary because he was already almost uh, predicting these things that only later did we realize were true. But aside from that, Hebb was really realizing that the brain is not a structure that is not going to be modulated due to experience. When you stimulate a neuron strong enough and it keeps communicating, neuron A continuously communicates with neuron B, there's going to be a strengthening of a connection there and something is going to form and then the nerve, the brain is going to get strengthened through this experience. And later we figured out that this is kind of how memories are created. When there's this stimulation, then... Um, these connections kind of get stronger and, and create these memories. This brings us to Eric Kandel. He investigated how the activity of the aplysia nervous system, which I believe is like a sea snail, um, and in particular the synapses within the aplysia nervous system changed as a result of learning. Kandel focused on an easily measurable behavior, the snail's gill withdrawal reflex. So um, a light touch basically on parts of the animal's body causes it to retract its gill in basic protective response. Um, it basically thinks there's going to be danger when you touch its gill, so it it reflexively removes its gill from the area. Kandel's group demonstrated that this reflex could show very simple forms of learning and short-term memory. Habituation, for instance, which is a decline in the response with repeated stimulation, um, so the more uh, you stimulate it, the less it's going to keep pulling away. It's going to pull away less and less each time. Uh, they also discovered sensitization, which is an increase in the response if a light touch was associated with a brief electric shock. So if, it's, if this touch to the gill is very aversive to the snail, then it's going to pull back even harder. This is sensitization. Um, so he discovered these types of things with, with a very simple reflex in the aplysia nervous system. Over the years, as he continued this research, Kandel and his colleagues identified the neural circuits involved in these behaviors. So not only did he discover these behaviors, he discovered the circuitry behind them in the nervous system of this animal. And this kind of built on Hebb's Hebb's postulate of neurons firing together, wiring together, excuse me. So Kandel discovered that learning involves a change in the strength of synapses in small circuits of neurons. In short-term memory, that change involves enhanced release of a neurotransmitter. In long-term memory, induced by the repeated association of stimuli, this increased release of neurotransmitter was accompanied by the growth of new connections between the two cells. All of this to say <laughs> that Eric Kandel basically built on Hebb's postulate that when you uh, continuously stimulate circuits, then there's going to be an enhanced neurotransmitter release, which is um, which are chemicals that communicate between neurons. There's going to be an enhanced release, and overall. With continuous stimulation, there's going to be a strengthening of connections between two neurons. So this is this is really the basis of memory and how the snail remembers to kind of pull its gill away more or less each time because the, the connections there become stronger and stronger with stimulation. So these are really the pioneers in the research on the neuroscience of memory. What we're going to talk about now is how one of the most influential cases in 
the study, the neuroscientific study of memory, helped to expound on these initial discoveries. One of the most influential cases in research on the neuroscience of memory was the case of H.M. His name, for privacy reasons, was just, he just went by these initials until he passed away in 2008. We now know his name was Henry Molaison, but we'll just uh, talk about him as, as H.M. here. So H.M., what happened to him? He had parts of his brain removed to treat epileptic seizures. Um, so what they did was they removed the medial portions to so the inside portions of the temporal lobes. But we later realized that these lobes were actually very important in memory. So the removal of HM's medial temporal lobes caused him to have profound memory deficits, unfortunately. And this was, his seizures were gone, but what happened to him is that he could no longer form new memories. So not only were seizures gone, all of his mental faculties remained intact as well. He could also remember just about everything from before the surgery too. But the issue is that he could now not develop new memories for the rest of his life. He Every single day was a new day to him. He, he had no recollection of, of anything after the surgery. He could not form new memories. And this was a case that really allowed researchers to unfortunately discover that, okay, memory... Um, is located in these brain areas. So obviously we cannot conduct this procedure anymore just to relieve seizures. There were three major contributions of HM's case to the neuroscience of memory and research into this. Number one was that it challenged the then prevalent view that memory functions are equivalently distributed throughout the brain. So what researchers thought before this was that Memories are distributed all across the brain in, in even portions. So if HM loses his medial temporal lobes, he'll still have, be able to form memories because he's got all these other structures. But what this case showed was that the destruction of HM's hippocampi, which, which actually were regions of the brain within the medial temporal lobes, or kind of right next to it, that actually ended up being removed, were responsible for his inability to form new memories. So they figured out that, okay, it is the hippocampus that is responsible for forming new memories. And it's not uh, a decentralized process that forms new memories. It all takes place here in the hippocampus, essentially. This does not mean that all memories are stored in the hippocampus. More than anything, this means that this structure is required for the brain to create them. And these are the issues that HM had. He could not create new memories because his hippocampus was removed. The second major scientific contribution of HM's case was the discovery of different modes of processing for short-term and long-term memory. So what was interesting about HM was that he could perform everyday tasks just fine. His short-term memory was intact. You need short-term memory to go about your day. And when you get upstairs, you need to know, okay, why did I come up here? Am I here to get breakfast? Am I here to do this? And how am I going to prepare this sandwich? And and this is these are functions of your short-term memory. And he could do this just fine. The only issue for HM was that he could not consolidate memory. And consolidation of memory is the translation of short-term memories into long-term memories. He could make that sandwich just fine, but he couldn't remember what sandwich he made yesterday because he couldn't... Uh, consolidate this short-term memory and make it a long-term memory at all. So they discovered that there were different 
uh, modes of processing for short and long-term memory. In HM's case, you can lose all of your long-term memory, but still have your short-term memory. And that discovery came from this case. There was also the discovery, the, number, the third scientific contribution really of this case was the discovery that an amnesic patient, so a patient with memory loss, can claim to have no memory of ever completing a task while simultaneously getting better on that very task. This is one of the most mind-boggling things about this case. H.M. was tasked in the research that they did on him, and mostly conducted by Brenda Milner, um, a, a McGill neuroscientist at the time. H.M. was tasked to draw a star on three separate occasions, so drawing a star, by watching his hand move in the, in the mirror. So usually when you're drawing, obviously, you're watching uh, the pencil on the paper or the pen on the paper or whatever. But for HM, he wasn't able to see his hand, but he had to watch his hand in the mirror to draw this. By the third day, HM made significantly fewer errors on the task, and this showed that his brain had, in fact, remembered how to perform the task better and better, but he could not recall ever having seen the task before. Every single time he saw this task, he said, oh, this is a this is a nice new task. I've never seen this before. So consciously, he did not ever remember seeing it, but subconsciously, there was clearly some improvement happening. So there was a memory still almost forming of how to complete the task, but he could not explicitly ever remember doing these tasks. So this kind of force researchers into distinguishing between conscious and unconscious memories really for the first time. Because clearly HM had built up some unconscious memory. He was improving on the task, but he just had no conscious recollection of ever doing it. So this caused the researchers to distinguish between these two types of memories. Conscious long-term memories became known as declarative memories and unconscious memories became known as implicit memories. In HM's case, uh, he had implicit memory of the task because these are the unconscious memories of the task that um, he, he was getting better and better, but he had no declarative memory. He could not declare ever having done this task before, no conscious memory of it. Building off of this uh, research on memory in the hippocampus specifically, this very uh, internalized structure in the brain, John O'Keefe, Another pioneer in memory research expanded on this in finding that the hippocampus not only encodes memories, but it also actually creates a literal map of one's environment. This map, consisting of what are called place cells, contains information about how to get from one location to another, enabling organisms to navigate the world and to predict what it will find in different places. So, for instance, when a a lot of this research is done on rats and mice. When a rat goes to different areas of a maze, different areas, different uh, place cells in the hippocampus light up, showing that the outside world, in a sense, is imprinted on the brain. As the rat goes to corner one, uh, an oversimplification again, but corner one of the hippocampus lights up. And then when he goes to corner four, corner four of the hippocampus lights up and that place cell lights up because you're in a different place. So the external environment is almost actually mapped onto the hippocampus, this region in your brain. And that's why it's very responsible for spatial navigation and navigating through the environment. What we're going to talk about now 
is the neural mechanisms of memory formation. We, we kind of touched on it a little bit about Donald Hebb's principle of neurons that fire together, wire together, and how the more firing you get between neurons, the stronger that connection becomes in a way, and how this memory is formed. But let's go into depth a little more about it. The mechanism that researchers really seem to think is going on is a mechanism called long-term potentiation. This is the gradual strengthening of the connections among neurons, again, these are brain cells, by repetitive stimulation over time, kind of as we talked about. Hebb's postulate of how neurons that fire together wire together is really what's going on here. So again, <laughs> I guess one of the main takeaways of this episode so far is constant firing of these areas. If you keep stimulating the brain in a certain way and, and you say you uh, read the same paragraph every day, that's those same region, brain regions keep firing, keep firing over and over and over. Then they get stronger and stronger and your memory becomes stronger and stronger for that one paragraph that you're reading. So this is really what's happening. In 1973, this is when the discovery of long-term potentiation was made. Bliss and Lomo reported that they could change the structure of the neuronal pathways in the hippocampus of the rabbit by stimulating the pathway with a very rapid series of electrical pulses. By constantly stimulating a certain pathway, so imitating a strong stimulus experienced in real life, kind of like say you're reading one paragraph over and over to memorize it, you constantly stimulate one pathway or one set of neurons, changes in the synapses occur. Remember, the synapse is the region in between two neurons. Um, this is really how memory seems to work in the brain. In this 1973 disc excuse me, discovery of long-term potentiation um, allowed researchers to glean what was happening really within individual brain cells to form memories. On a broader scale, these are kind of about individual brain cells, but we have, <laughs> some people say, more brain cells than stars in the galaxy, or hundreds of billions. Uh, so let's, let's <laughs> expand a little bit and talk about where memories are stored in the brain, kind of in different regions. The brain is kind of divided up into regions, arbitrarily by scientists, um, but not not quite fully arbitrarily because they're, they're divided into the regions that perform specific functions. Um, before we talk about where memories are stored in the brain, though, let's talk about two important principles of memory in the brain. The first one is that memories are stored diffusely in the brain and thus can survive destruction of any single structure. So remember in the case of HM, if you can recall, even though he had parts of his medial temporal lobes removed, remember, he could still remember everything from before the surgery. So it's not that, and I guess some of this information may sound conflicting because one of the things that was discovered in the HM case is that memories are not um, as diffusely, it, it are diffusely stored in the brain as we thought but that's just because he had his hippocampus removed so or parts of his hippocampus removed and what he couldn't do was store any memories so what they found was that um that structure alone was basically fully responsible for creating new memories but it doesn't mean that memories can't be stored in other places in the brain too so remember hm still had memory of the events before his surgery so obviously memories were still stored in other regions of the brain 
Um, and clearly not every single memory is exists in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is just responsible for um, kind of forming new memories in a way. The second principle of memory in the brain is that areas of the brain that are active during the retention of an experience tend to be the same ones active during the original experience. Recall the um, reactivation of brain areas that I experience when I recall that scene from the movie, or that uh, every time I listen to that song, I reactivate those areas that were active when I first saw the scene in the movie, so I think of the scene in the movie, or <laughs> kind of, as we talked about, if you're reading a paragraph and you want to memorize this one paragraph for some reason for the rest of your life, every time, if you want to remember that paragraph in your um, say on a test trying to write that paragraph out, those same brain regions are activating from when you were learning that paragraph. So this is principle number two, areas of the brain that are active during the retention of an experience while you're in that exam, those are the same brain areas that lit up when you were learning about reading that par uh, to read that paragraph. Let's talk about where memories are stored in the brain now, to close out this episode. The hippocampus, we've already talked about this. This is the case of HM. Um, it has an important role in the consolidation of information from short-term to long-term memory, as we've already talked about. Recall the case of HM, where he could not form new memories. And recall the, um, the spatial maps that it has within it and how it has a map of the environment. It's involved in spatial memory, too that enables navigation. The inferotemporal cortex as well, this is a brain area that contains memories for visual input, so memories of seeing certain things. The amygdala also is implicated in memory. Um, really what the amygdala uh, controls is the memory of emotionally significant events. Rats, rats with legions in the amygdala do not respond with fear to threat of an electric shock, funnily enough. So they almost have no fear in a way. Um, so really it relates to these emotional memories. There's little evidence though that the amygdala actually stores memories within it. What it does appear to be involved in rather is the strengthening of emotionally significant memories that are actually stored in other structures. So these brain areas, they, they work together and they communicate and there are a lot of connections between them. So it's very kind of messy sometimes when neuroscientists study these things. There's also the prefrontal cortex this is involved in working memory. Working memory is the ability to maintain relevant memories while a task is being completed. Kind of like HM when he's making a sandwich. His prefrontal cortex wasn't removed in the surgery, so he could still uh, remember, okay, now we're... What's the next step in making the sandwich and how am I going to do this? And because his prefrontal cortex is in control of working memory, so he could perform that task just fine. He just couldn't, again, remember the sandwich he had made yesterday because his hippocampus was damaged. So people with prefrontal cortex damage, if hippocampus had his, or excuse me, if HM had his prefrontal cortex removed, he wouldn't be able to perform tasks that involve a series of responses, like making the sandwich, or he wouldn't have been able to do the task where he had to draw the star by looking in the mirror either, because it's kind of a procedural memory more than anything. Finally, we have the cerebellum. The cerebellum is involved in storage of motor skill memories, um, like playing the piano, doing martial arts, sports, or anything with movement. The cerebellum is, is really implicated in that. 
this is where we are at the present. This is what we know about the neuroscience of memory. But what about the future? And when we talk about the future of neuroscience, often you hear talk about optogenetics. And you heard me talk about this in the neuroplasticity episode, because a lot of anything about the brain, you might just hear this brought up these days. Let's flesh this topic out for the people who have not listened to that episode yet. Optogenetics is adding a piece of genetic code to neurons that allows them to respond to light and then allows scientists to switch neurons on and off by manipulating light pulses. So we'll simplify this in a second. But if you think about opto, opto like optometry or light, And then genetics is manipulation of the genes that control the brain cells. So this brings us to activating neurons, brain cells, using light. That's basically all all they're doing. But the simplest way to think of it, imagine uh, a rat's running in 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 a Skinner box in the lab and a neuroscientist flicks on a light switch and then the rat does a different thing. It's not that simple, but this is added. (laughs) at its most basic what they're doing. The development of optogenetics has enabled researchers to manipulate memory in mice. This is where uh, manipulation of memory is starting to get in and and is a little bit freaky, to be honest. In Nobel Prize winner Susumu Tonegawa's lab at MIT, false memories have been created in the rodent hippocampus, leading to an animal to freeze in a particular part of the cage as though it had previously been shocked there, although it had never had any such experience. So it goes to a certain part of the cage, and all of a sudden, it feels fear. And it's just like, what? Like It had never even had any reason to feel fear there, but now it's feeling fear as if it got shocked there before. So even though no experience happened, you can create a memory of a false experience optogenetically, which is absolutely mind-boggling. Other researchers have created a memory entirely from scratch by optogenetically activating both the olfactory bulb and brain areas involved in reward and aversion. As a result, They have made mice remember smells they have never encountered. So when they come across a smell, they'll they'll act as if they've smelled it a million times before. They've never smelled it before. So this is this manipulation of memory. And if this gets scaled up into humans, (laughs) who knows if and when that will ever happen. But this can get pretty scary and a little bit Black Mirror-esque. In the neuroscience of memory, you guys, hope you guys enjoyed it. I always enjoy these science topics, and uh, science about the brain is is even better. If you like this episode, everybody, um, we're growing our community through word of mouth and through sharing it with others. So if you liked it, please share it with some people who also are interested in science or interested in the brain or memory specifically or the neuroscience of memory. Um, please subscribe as well on whatever platform you listen on. Please leave a star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or a like on YouTube if you're watching this. Please also share your own ideas in the YouTube comments section from the Connect page on the website, InsightfulThinkersMedia.com, Instagram at InsightfulThinkersMedia, or Twitter at TMITM. Also check out the poems and the articles on the website. And if you want to join our monthly ITP video conference call where we choose topics to discuss and analyze together every month, you can do so on Patreon. Whatever you guys do to support, listening and watching is always great. And uh, yeah, we're, we're building a great community of, uh, 
of people who enjoy in-depth analysis and do diverse set of topics. We'll be back next week as always for more of this in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics you guys next Monday. See you guys then. Have a great week.